Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the most haunted, most spooktacular, most other side, bridging the gap, crossing through the threshold podcast on the internet. That's right. We're talking Mega Strange, everybody. Welcome. Thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Derek Acosta, and you can follow me on Instagram at Derek Acosta. Dedrick Acosta, actually, and uh, you can follow this show at Mega Strange Podcast on Instagram, and you're going to want to follow us on Instagram because I'm thinking about doing some live streams coming up here, not just for this show, but for any uh, live event I might be doing, the Mega 64 Podcast or what have you. I think it'd be fun to just share with you a little behind-the-scenes sneak peek about what goes on in my world when the cameras aren't rolling, so tune into that. You're not going to want to miss it. Welcome to another great episode of the Mega Strange Podcast. Last week, we put out a question to all of our viewers. What should the name of our friendly little critter here be? We've had this guy on our set for quite a while now, and frankly, we don't know what to call him. And it's rude not to have a name to address your friends, your toys, you know, Mothman, uh whatever this thing is, I'm not a Godzilla fan, Ghidra, maybe, Smegma, whatever his name is, but this one officially has no name, and so we put it to you, the viewers, to suggest what the name should be, and I gotta hand it to you, a lot of people out there were pretty creative with the things that they suggested, and I think we are going to go with one of these suggested names that our faithful mega strangers have put forward to us. Uh, I want to go down a list here of what some of the suggestions were and uh, give a couple honorable mentions out as well. So the user Bonesaw on YouTube said, hoping the critter is officially given the name Megan Strange. Now that's pretty good, but I definitely don't want to name this uh, critter after an ex-girlfriend of mine. And I did used to date a girl named Megan. So it would just bring up too many bad memories. I would start arguing with this thing just out of nowhere, just being triggered by all the... uh, just the drama that comes uh, with with my personal past experience. Extreme Link, user Extreme Link suggested, I say we name the little guy Jarek, a combination of Johnny and Derek's name. Now, that is pretty good, but I am going to say that there just ain't enough room at this table for a Johnny, a Derek, and a Jarek. It would just get way too confusing. Zerodo, username Zerodo, suggested name the little ge- guy Apifoli. A P P I F O L Y. Apifoli. I like that. Apifoli. Kind of rolls off the tongue. I also don't know what it means. And uh, I'm worried that I would just start mispronouncing it uh, over time. And then it would kind of become irrelevant because this person wouldn't be able to correct me. Carol M. suggests, why don't you name the toy Matrix Bubble Steam? Pretty good. Pretty good. He's in a bubble. It's kind of like being stuck in the Matrix. Matrix Bubble Steam. Okay. Randall Robertson said, uh, name the critter the San Diego Terror. Now, that's pretty good because this thing kind of looks like a cryptid already. And uh, San Diego, well, you know, we already do have a 
cryptid monster here, the Proctor Valley monster. In fact, we covered the Proctor Valley monster on one of our most popular episodes. You should go back and watch it. It's titled The Most Demon-Infested Road in America, which is located right here in San Diego, supposedly. Uh, and maybe there just isn't enough room in this town for two cryptids. Rackmaster Double Zero said the little guy should be named something satanic, like Damien or Beelzebub. B or Bub for short. Now, I like that. We did an episode about some demon origins, and we found out that Beelzebub really just is the Greek god Zeus. Um, I, yeah, for right now, that's uh, up there in the top running. This guy, I could see him being little Beelzebub here. Lil B. Oh, wait, that's already a rapper. Maybe that's already taken. Okay, hold on. Brian Bratton suggested the name for the toy should be All Ball, and that's a great reference to uh, Coco the gorilla who had a pet kitty that the Coco named All Ball. And I like that suggestion, too. That's also in the top running for me, though I am a little concerned because Coco was involved in, like, a sexual harassment lawsuit, so any reference to Coco might just have, like, a weird connotation. By the way, one of our viewers, Katie, out there told me that she did not need to hear about Coco's sexual assault allegations because the idea of Coco was so innocent and so pure, this sign language gorilla, that it kind of tarnished Coco's reputation and she'll never be able to look at this gorilla ever the same uh, ever again. But you know what I say? Maybe that's a good thing, even though Coco already passed away. We need to have the truth come out. We can't be covering up for the sexual misconduct of these gorillas. And by the way, in regards to our recent Talking Animals episode, there were a lot of comments responding to the idea that Coco uh, is communicating, debating whether it's actually Coco communicating or not. And a couple of viewers suggested that there is a lot of evidence that suggests that Coco is a hoax. Coco is a no-go, and that it was the researchers themselves who were putting forward the idea that Coco was able to communicate, but they weren't doing the due diligence when it came to the science of letting their work be reviewed by peers. They weren't letting Coco, the research and the studies done on Coco, uh, they weren't putting it up to the firing squad, if you will, and letting the real skeptics and the real scientists hold a magnifying glass up to the research to scrutinize it to see if it stood the test of time. And they are suggesting that it's a hoax and that Coco cannot really talk and that it's just the researchers themselves who are putting this on Coco, who are inferring that the communication is happening, which we already kind of covered in the show. But if that is the case, that casts a whole new light on the allegations against Coco. Who was demanding to see the nipples if the gorilla wasn't really talking? That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. And those researchers are still alive, so maybe we need to have another lawsuit, another investigation opened up on the uh, real foul play that was going on there in the Coco Research Center. Maybe we should have named this thing All Ball. I don't know. The doll should be named Crowley, says Tudor Gagia, a uh, reference to Aleister Crowley, uh, one of the most famous magicians, slash, slash 
Satanists of the past hundred years. Um, it would be a nice reference. Everybody's coming out with the demonic references. Nobody's saying like call call the thing uh, you know Michael, call the thing uh, Saint Mother Teresa. You know nobody's bringing that out. It's all like call it Beelzebub, call it Crowley, call it Ozzy Osbourne's undead corpse. Nobody said that, but I like to imagine somebody may have if we let the rabbit hole go on further and further. But Jeremy, username Jeremy, great username, uh, I think had the winning suggestion with this comment. The little creature in the ball should be named Peanut Suckle. And you know what? I don't know why, but I like the name Peanut Suckle. I like the name Peanut Suckle. What can I say? Peanut Suckle tickles my fancy. I don't know what it means. But it's not demonic. It's not a reference to a crime. And uh, it's not a name that you hear very often. It's not going to be taken up. It's not going to be in competition with anybody here. By golly, I think we found our winning name. Everybody, I'd like to introduce you to the official critter of the Mega Strange news table. Peanut Suckle. Let us know what you think about the name Peanut Suckle in the comments below. And you know what? I'm going to leave this open for another week. Johnny isn't here. We're going to have to get his opinion when he comes back to the microphone. So we're going to propose Peanut Suckle, and I'm sure he's going to love it. But if you want to get another competitive name to go against Peanut Suckle, now is your last chance. Get those names in here. At this point, your Peanut Suckle is the name to beat. That's the one we're going with. On today's episode, and you probably already saw the title when you clicked in, but we are going to be talking about rock and roll musicians who have recorded some of their most famous albums in haunted locations, or at least they've tried to record famous albums in haunted locations because sometimes it just doesn't work out because the ghosts are too spooky, they're too... They permeate the walls and they take up the space so much with their dark negative energies that they actually drive these creative artists out of the home before the album is ever done. We're going to be talking about Alice Cooper. We're going to be talking about Joe Perry from Aerosmith. And we're going to be talking about, arguably, one of the greatest albums to come out in the last 25 years. That's right. My Chemical Romances hit 2006 Third studio album, banger, release, The Black Parade. We're getting some Black Parade lore today on Mega Strange, so you're in the right spot. And I uh, thank you once again for joining us. Uh, but before we get into that, uh, you know what? Let's just get into it. Let's just get into it. Let's start with uh, a little story that comes all the way from Long Island, New York, and this one goes back to the 1980s, and this is about the writer of the hit song, Be My Frankenstein, Alice Cooper. Now, I personally, uh, you know, I like Alice Cooper. He's not the greatest, he's not the biggest rock star in the world, 
Um, but you know, I, when I was growing up, I saw the movie Wayne's World, and he has a hilarious cameo in that movie. And I just always thought Alice Cooper is—he's got to be a cool guy. He seems like he goes with the flow. He seems like he has a good sense of humor. He's very playful in all the things he does. Plus, you know, I'm just a sucker for like horror and horror rock and roll. And he's almost like the Rob Zombie of the '70s and '80s. Uh, you know, a predecessor to all of these uh, guys who are a little bit uh, of a showman in the way that they present themselves and the way that they approach their music. Well, as this story goes, Alice Cooper in the mid-1980s was actually, speaking of Alice Cooper being in movies, he was actually approached by an Italian film director by the name of Claudio Fergasso. And Claudio Fergasso wanted Alice Cooper to play the part of the musician Vincent Raven in a horror movie called Monster Dog. Now, the plot of Monster Dog would see Vincent Raven and his girlfriend Sandra and a film crew drive to Vince's former childhood home uh, with the purpose of shooting a music video. And while they were there doing that, They would be confronted by a pack of wild canines, reputedly led by a terrifying, demonic, flesh-eating monster dog. Hey, we said the titular title of the movie, everybody, and that's why the movie would be called Monster Dog. And from there, things would get really messy. Now, we don't have much details on what the plot of Monster Dog would go on beyond that, but I'm assuming this Monster Dog would be, like, eating people, would be, like, biting the crew members, you know, like, biting their legs, jumping up, biting them in the ass, you know, making mincemeat out of them, turning them into a little flank steak, growling, doing that, that, that dog head whip back and forth, just throwing blood all over the place. Probably would have been a great movie. Uh, In 1986, Alice Cooper was interviewed by a Canadian newspaper, and he revealed that at the time, he was into the idea of doing a cheap, sleazy B-movie, and that the producers had told him that there's no chance this movie's ever going to be released in theaters. And uh, Alice Cooper said, that's great. This just sounds like fun. You know what? Sign me up and do it. Let's do it. Rock and roll, baby. Alice Cooper starring in Monster Dog. So as the story goes, he asked his friend, Aerosmith guitarist, Joe Perry, uh, to help him write music for the movie. And the two of them had just freshly come out of rehab, and so they decided to work together on this project to get the creative juices flowing again. He contacted his manager, um... And they were set up in a home in upstate New York that was an old house in the middle of farm country. Alice Cooper said that he recalled later when talking to the magazine that he was putting his clothes away into the closet of the room he had decided to stay in. And he had, uh, and he was putting them into the dresser as well. And he left the room for a moment, but when he came back, The closet door was closed, and the drawer that he was packing was closed as well. And he thought to himself, hmm, I don't remember closing those. Uh, 
he said that uh, items started going missing as well. For example, his harmonica disappeared. Joe Perry's strings from his guitar disappeared, like his spare strings. And then later, when they were at dinner, it sounded like somebody was moving furniture in the basement. They heard the sounds of dragging coming from down below. That deep kind of, uh, you know, wood dragging against stone. A rumble coming from below the house. And he said it wasn't subtle. He says that, uh, you know, they were making so much noise, it's not like they were even trying to hide it. They were starting to get a little nervous with all of these weird things happening. And so Alice Cooper went to visit his manager, who is a famous uh, music and film manager by the name of Shep Gordon. And he told him everything that was going on. And Shep Gordon replied, oh, yeah. That house is the house that they uh, that the Amityville horror was written about. Yeah, you guys are in that house. And Alice Cooper says, uh, this wasn't like Scooby-Doo. We didn't get flashlights and say, let's go down there and check it out. He said, we were out of there. Me and Joe, we ran out of the house never to come back. That's the story of Alice Cooper working on the film Monster Dog. Um, But I want to be honest with you in the interest of full transparency. I did a little digging into this story to see how true it was. And there are some slight inconsistencies with the claim that this is the house from the Amityville Horror. Let me refresh everybody's memory out there if you're not familiar with the story of the Amityville Horror let's get into it so the Amityville Horror was a book that was written in 1977 by the author Jay Anson it was later turned into a movie two years later in 1979 and it claims that there was paranormal experiences suffered by the Lutz family while living in a home at the address of 122 Ocean Avenue in Long Island, New York. I'm sorry, the address is 112, 112 Ocean Avenue. By the way, if you look up 112 Ocean Avenue on um, Google Maps, the houses on the whole street are blocked out. Now, I don't know if that's because the Amityville Horror has become so famous that people are going down there and harassing. I don't know what the deal is. You know, sometimes they blur out sensitive, like, government property or um, just sensitive information on Google Maps. But for whatever reason, the Amityville Horror House is not available for viewing on Google Maps. It's all blurred out, a block in each direction. 112 Ocean Avenue. Now, as the story goes, apparently, in November of 1974, on November 13th, a 23-year-old man named Ronald DeFeo Jr. was living in that house with his family at 112 Ocean Avenue. At about 6.30 p.m. that night, Ronald, who was 23 years old, entered Henry's Bar, which was a bar down the street from the house, and he declared to everybody in the bar, you have to help me. I think my mother and my father have been shot. 
DeFeo and a small group of bar patrons went down to 1112 Ocean Avenue, uh, just a few blocks away, and they went inside and they found that Ronald's parents were, in fact, dead inside the house. But not only that. You see, one of Ronald's friends made an emergency call to the police who came down and they searched the home and they found that there were six family members in the house who had been murdered. Each of them had been shot. It was both of Ronald's parents and four of his siblings. The DeFeo family had been living in that house for nine years up at that point after purchasing the home in 1965. Ronald was taken into police custody for his own protection because he claimed that the killings were carried out by a mafia hitman. However, in a subsequent interview with the police at the station, he started to expose some inconsistencies in his story. And the following day, he confessed that he was the one who had carried out the killings. He claimed that he had heard voices in the house, voices of his family plotting to kill him, and that he responded in self-defense by killing them first. He was put on trial, and uh, he was... Uh, he used the defense of insanity, but a psychiatrist declared that though he had some personality disorders and was a heavy user of heroin and LSD, he was aware of his actions at the time, and so he was not found innocent by uh, or not guilty by the defense of insanity. He was found guilty. He was sentenced to six consecutive life sentences, and the judge of the trial said that it was the most heinous murders committed in the county since the county's founding over a hundred years earlier. The house sat empty for 13 months until in 1975, in December of 1975, George and Kathleen Lutz decided to buy the home for what they considered to be a bargain of $80,000. The house was nice. It had a swimming pool. It had a boathouse. It was located next to a canal. George and Kathy had been married for about six months at that time, and they had each already owned uh, homes of their own, but they wanted a fresh start with the new property. Kathy had a previous uh, marriage, and she had three children left over from that previous marriage. By the way, in 1975, a single father and a single mother could both afford uh, a home on their own. I just want to point out how um, how uh, how jealous I am, frankly, that uh, I don't live in 1975 and just can't buy a house willy-nilly like apparently it was easy to do back then. During their first inspection of the house, a real estate broker told them about the DeFeo murders that had happened one year earlier and asked them if this was going to be a problem uh, with them and buying the house. They discussed the matter, but they decided that, no, nah, it wasn't a problem. They were fine with it. I myself would not be able to live in a house where six people were murdered just a year earlier. And I would expect that even, you know, I'm not the most superstitious person, even though I like doing this show. 
uh, generally, I just feel like the weight of that knowledge would get to me and would start to play tricks on my mind. Uh, but I don't know. You know, it's a three-story house. It's next to, like, a canal. It's got a boathouse. It's got a swimming pool. $80,000. Maybe I would put up with six ghosts. Who knows? Who knows? It's a tough call. Would you do it? Let me know. Leave a comment down below. Uh, well, not only that, not only, not only are they getting this awesome house for a great deal, but it's still filled with all the family's old furniture for just an extra $400. Now, who's pocketing that $400? Is that just the real estate agent being like, yeah, you know what? Uh, I'll let you keep the furniture if you just slip me a couple hundred bucks. I mean, family's not around anymore. The only surviving member is in jail. Who owns the furniture? It was probably like uh, it would cost more than $400 to get some movers to come and take it all out. So that real estate agent is like double dipping on the deal. That's the real crime here. Well, we're not going to get into that. Let's keep going forward. Uh, after learning about the history of the house and the murders that happened in it, the Lutz family decided to have... Uh, the, the house blessed by a priest. And so they asked for uh, Father Ralph J. Pecoraro to come down and bless the house. And as the story goes, he arrived to perform the blessing on the afternoon of December 18th, 1975. And when he flicked holy water and began to pray for the blessing of the house, he heard a masculine voice demand that he, quote, Get out. Get out. Of course, Father Picararo did get out, but for whatever reason, he did not mention this incident to the family before he left. And so they thought everything was okay. Until on December 24th, 1975, New Year's Eve, Father Picararo decided, hey, you know what? Let me ruin Christmas for the Lutz family. And he called them up on the telephone and he advised them to stay out of the second floor room where he had heard the mysterious voice, the former bedroom of two of the siblings who had been killed by Ronald DeFeo. This was a room that Mother Kathy of the Lutzes uh, had planned to use for a sewing room. But mysteriously, the call was cut short by static. By mid-January 1976, the Lutz family uh, had experienced a lot of weird things happening in the house and had attempted to do another blessing. But in some unclear events, they were scared and rushed out of the house. And the Lutzes claim that they don't want to, they never revealed quite exactly what happened on that night because it was too frightening. Uh, even though they wrote a book about this and it turned into a hit movie, it's like, come on, share the details. This is what people want to know. In January, on January 14th, 1976, the Lutzes and their three children and their dog, Harry, left 112 Ocean Avenue for the last time, leaving all their possessions behind. They just rushed out of there and they never went back. A mover arrived uh, the next day to move the possessions of the Lutzes out of the home, but he reported... No paranormal phenomenon while inside the house. And subsequent owners of the house have also said that there's been no further paranormal activity. Some people think that 
this story is a hoax. The Lutzes later went on to give interviews to an author, Jay Anson, who wrote the book, The Amityville Horror, which was later turned into a movie. A lot of people don't believe that this is true, but George and Kathy Lutz were administered polygraph tests, lie detector tests, in 1979 by uh, two people who were considered leading professionals in the field of lie detection at the time. Uh, somebody named Chris Gugas and another person named Michael Rice. And the results in Michael Rice's opinion indicated that the Lutzes were not lying about their claims to what they experienced in the house in Amityville. James Crow Marty bought the house in 1977 and he lived there with his wife, Barbara, for 10 years, and he has gone on record and said nothing weird ever happened, except for people coming because of the book and the movie. But of course, if he lived there from 1977 to 1987, that would mean he was the owner of the house at the time when Alice Cooper and Joe Perry claimed to have visited it while writing the soundtrack to Monster Dog. So, in my professional opinion, you know what? I believe that Alice Cooper did experience some hauntings on Long Island, but I think he may have been confused about where he was actually staying. Though, if you go back to the Amityville Horror, there are claims that the family was pursued by whatever evil spirit uh, was haunting them, and it followed them to another house later on. They visited Kathy's mother's house and experienced some paranormal stuff there. So, it could have been a family member's house. It could have been a house that the Lutz family visited after uh, being in the Amityville Horror home and they had dragged the paranormal creature with them somewhere and left it laying in wait to spring a trap on Alice Cooper. Or perhaps Alice Cooper was just haunted um, by somebody else and uh, it was conflated with the Amityville Horror home. We'll never know. Um, by the way, has anybody out there seen the Amityville horror movie? I love horror movies, but I've never seen this movie. From what I gather, it's really bad. It's like, uh, rated like a three out of 10 on IMDb and the Rotten Tomatoes give it like a 29%. So I've never really bothered watching it. I always hear it's a pretty boring movie, but let me know what you think. If you, if, is the Amityville horror worth watching in your opinion? And no, I'm not talking about the, uh, the new one with Ryan Reynolds. That one's just worth watching because you get to see Ryan Reynolds and who doesn't love Ryan Reynolds? I'm talking about the original one. Well, you know what? I'm talking about both of them. Let me know. I hear they both kind of suck. So give me your opinion. All my Amityville fans out there, hit me up. Convince me. I think it's boring. Change my mind. Okay, let's move on. Uh, When I was a young boy... I was really into emo music, and I especially loved all the New Jersey uh, bands. I'm talking Thursday, Taking Back Sunday, and of course, My Chemical Romance. Who out there didn't have a My Chemical Romance phase? Anybody? Uh, if you didn't like My Chemical Romance, you're not okay. I promise. Uh, and of course, uh, My Chemical Romance had their biggest hit commercially, with their third album, The Black Parade. But did you know that The Black Parade was actually recorded 
in a haunted house in Los Angeles. Uh, and the band members themselves think that they received some sort of curse while they were staying in that house that followed them on tour after they had finished recording the album and they went on and had all of these strange occurrences happen to them and um, instances of bad luck. It's true. It's true. The house that they stayed at was called The Paramore, uh, and it was built in 1918. The Paramore is one of the most famous homes in Los Angeles, and it's the site of a lot of music videos and TV shows and movies have been filmed there. In fact, if you want to see some shots of The Paramore, you can check out the 1997 horror film Halloween H2O, starring Jamie Lee Curtis. That was filmed at The Paramore Home. And when you watch that movie, uh, the setting is a little creepy. I mean, despite the fact that Michael Myers is like sticking his head in all the windows and like trying to kill people when they're not watching, it does have like an ominous presence to it. The home was built by a socialite uh, by the name of Daisy Moreno, and she was the heiress to the Pan American Petroleum fortune. Her father was a millionaire oil tycoon by the name of Charles Canfield. And in 1918, she used her money to commission the building of the home, which at the time she named Crestmount. It was over 18,000 square feet, and the estate featured terraced fountains, rose gardens, orange groves, six-bedroom suites, a swimming pool, a five-car garage, a greenhouse, stables, and wishing well. The media outlets at the time, the newspapers and radio programs, dubbed the Crestmount the most beautiful home in Hollywood. She moved into the house in 1923 with her new husband, silent film star Antonio Moreno. And here is where the couple would host star-studded Hollywood events, film screenings, dinner parties, and all kinds of the debauchery that would happen in Hollywood during the Roaring Twenties. The uh, couple, Daisy and Antonio, eventually moved out of the home in 1929, just six years later. And the heiress and her sisters uh, deeded the estate to a private boarding school for girls that they wanted to be named after, after their deceased mother. And so during the Great Depression, the school was known as the Chloe P. Canfield School for Girls, and it educated orphans and young girls, and it was run by nuns. By the way, Chloe P. Canfield has a dark history herself because she was murdered by one of her servants right in front of Daisy Moreno, her daughter, back in 1906. And this traumatic event supposedly always plagued Daisy throughout her life. Well, Daisy met her own unfortunate end in February of 1933 when her car went over a cliff while driving down Mulholland Drive in Los Angeles. Now, as the story goes, Daisy and her 21-year-old driver, Renee Dussog, had left a party that night celebrating the engagement of Daisy's daughter to her new fiancé. Now, people claim that Daisy and Renee were not drinking that night, and they attribute the accident to a heavy fog that had rolled into Los Angeles. But for whatever reason, 
The car went over the cliff on Mulholland Drive, and Daisy was thrown from the vehicle, and her body landed in the canyon below. Renee survived the crash and was able to climb back up the cliff and hail some passing drivers for help. And it's said that uh, uh, some, a couple, I don't have their name here. I can't find it. It is in my notes, but I can't find it at the moment. But this couple was returning from their own party, and they saw Renee, the 21-year-old driver, covered in blood, trying to hail them down. Daisy's body was later recovered, and it's not clear what happened to her. Some people say that she was cremated. Some people say that her remains were laid to rest at the home named after her mother. Uh, the Paramore. The house remained in the hands of the nuns uh, for a long time until 1987 when it was damaged by uh, an earthquake that struck Los Angeles, an earthquake that injured over 200 people. At this point, the house had a lot of structural damage and it was no longer fit to be a girls' school and it remained Uh, It went up for sale, and it remained on sale for about 10 years until 1998 when it was bought by restaurateur Dana Hollister for about $2 million, and she renamed it the Paramore Estate. Now, apparently at this point in 1998, a lot of people, uh, famous people, had come to visit the house. Anthony Kiedis of the Red Hot Chili Peppers um, was offered to buy the home before Dana Hollister got it, but he rejected it because he said that the house felt too much like the hotel from The Shining. He was the one who actually told Dana Hollister about it, and she bought the house. Um, But at one point, it was offered to Tim Burton. It was offered to Danny Elfman. But Dana just didn't want to let it go. She started rebuilding the house and remodeling it and trying to restore it to its former glory. And in 2006... My Chemical Romance moved into the house, rented it for a short duration so that they could record their latest album. According to the story, uh, by the way, My Chemical Romance is uh, Gerard Way, Ray Toro on guitar, Frank Iero on rhythm guitar, Mikey Way, brother of Gerard Way, on bass, and Bob Breyer on drums. The band moved into the estate with their producer, Rob Cavallo, um, and they had told Rob that they put they gave him the task of tracking down a weird location for them to record their latest album. Uh, and Rob Cavallo had heard rumors and legends that the Paramore home was haunted and figured that the band would get a kick out of staying in a spooky atmosphere. The band's first impression of the building was similar to that of Anthony Kiedis. This house seems like the hotel from The Shining. There's a note that they put in the liner notes of the booklet that came with the Black Parade album, and it says, Right away, we felt like this place was going to consume you, and eventually, it would. There were so many hallways that seemed to lead somewhere very dark, stairways that led to a place that led to places that were very cold. The whole place was cold. The whole place seemed haunted. We figured this would work for us. We all drew numbers to see who got which room. And it almost ended up seeming like the house chose which one we got. 
because each room really seemed to fit each guy. Except for Mikey. His room was terrifying to be in. And I couldn't exactly tell you why, it just had a vibe to it. The next day our gear arrived and we set up. You could tell no one had slept very well on account of the cold or the fact that you always felt like someone was watching you. That's Gerard Way speaking in the Black Parade booklet. The band soon reported signs of paranormal activity and haunting. Dogs would bark at thin air. They had dogs in the home that would just start barking at nothing randomly for no reason. Frankie and Gerard witnessed doors slamming by themselves. And what I think is maybe the weirdest instance of this haunting is they said that on a couple of times they would leave the home and would come back and find that the bathtubs had been filled with water even though nobody was in the home except for them. Gerard Way started to experience night terrors while staying at the Paramore, and he actually referenced these night terrors in the song that he wrote called Sleep. Apparently, during these dreams, he would feel like there was a hand gripping his throat trying to choke him while he was laying in bed at night. He wrote the lyrics, There are these terrors, and it's like it feels as if somebody was gripping my throat. End quote. Uh, But the person who was most affected in the band was bassist Mikey Way, who said that, well, it was the general consensus that Mikey was in the most haunted room in the house. Apparently, it was a very terrifying room. For whatever reason, they didn't have normal lights in the room. They only had blue lights in the room that would cast an eerie, nightish, nighttime-like glow over the room at all times. And he just felt a strange presence in there that started to really weigh down on him. Band members have said that they will never quite reveal the extent of everything that happened to them in that house. And so we don't know exactly what happened to Mikey Way while he was staying in this room. But for whatever reason, he vacated the room during the duration of the recording of the album, and he bunked with his brother Gerard. He would sleep on the floor of his brother's room rather than stay in the haunted room by himself. Being in the house weighed on him so much, it got so bad, that he actually quit the band for a short period of time uh, before later coming back to return to finish the album. The band also reported having to import an abundance of space heaters because they were recording in a small living room, but no matter what they did, the living room was always freezing cold even during the warm summer months of Southern California while they were there. Rhythm guitarist Frank Iero has a story of his own that I found in a subsequent interview, and he says that he stayed in a room that was kind of like a spire. It was in the top of a uh, almost like a tower, and you'd have to take a spiral staircase to get to the room. And he said that late at night when he was in this room, he would hear something coming from the walls, 
something that sounded like scratching or something trying to get into the room while he was in there. He later heard a rumor that uh, recording artist Merle Haggard had at one time stayed in the room and that Merle Haggard had experienced paranormal activity, had seen a ghost in the room, and had written a song with the ghost in the room. I don't know what song this is. I wish I did. I wish I could look it up. I should have done more research. I wish I had the Merle Haggard song that he wrote with the ghost. Uh, and we could listen to it and be like, oh, Merle's parts are good, but the ghost parts are banging. Um, but Frank Iero did not write any music with the ghosts. Um, but he was, I mean, he does admit that these, you know, these sounds were strange. And he says that what Mikey Way experienced was way worse than what he experienced. Eventually, the band would leave the Paramore, but trouble would follow them. And they had various instances during the cycle of touring this album that made them think that they were cursed. For example, while filming the video Famous Last Words, Frank Iero jumped on singer Gerard Way and caused the vocalist to tear ligaments in his ankle. Meanwhile, the drummer, Bob Breyer, his leg caught on fire during one of the takes while filming the music video, and he suffered second and third degree burns. The burns eventually became infected and caused gangrene in his leg. He also injured his wrist on the tour, and a bunch of members of the band and crew got food poisoning while on the tour, causing them to cancel six shows. Uh, and Iero also got so sick while touring on the show in an unrelated illness that he had to uh, leave the tour at one point. The album cycle seemed so cursed that the band started to print merchandise that said, I survived the Black Parade in reference to their numerous misfortunes. And that is the story of My Chemical Romance recording their album in a haunted house. And that is our episode for today, everybody. What did you think? Have you heard any famous stories of musicians being haunted? Have you heard any famous stories of musicians recording their albums in a haunted house that you want us to cover on future episodes of this show. Let us know in the comments below. And if there's anything you want us to investigate or give you the full deep dive story on, you can leave those comments down below as well. We'll be back next week with another episode of Mega Strange. So until then, stay strange, everybody.